computers online. Archiving 44K. doesn't want you to hear. Now here is your host, Leno Sanic. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment we're speaking to Randy Benson, noted filmmaker and JFK researcher. Hello Mr. Benson. Hey Len, so great to be with you again. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today, and listeners, um, you're well known in the research community, but in case people don't know about you, you're known for one of the items is The Searchers. It's a documentary of various people, notably John Judge and others, who decided to spend their spare time as amateur historians looking into the facts of the JFK case, and these people who were working almost against the government's effort, you know, the Justice Department, you think there there was a trial, you think there was a murder here, what happened? And it's taken these people uh, from all denominations, and there's nothing really similar in life, they just all over the place have decided to look into this case. And that interested you. Tell people just a little bit about that documentary and where they can find it. Yeah, well, I made a film, came out, it took me 14 years to make, for a variety of reasons, but I uh, came out in 20, I showed a work in progress at the 50th at the um, COPA conference, and it came out officially three years later in 2017 at the Texas Theater and at JFK Lancer. Yeah, it's a portrait of the JFK assassination researchers, and I have a, a whole segment on the first generation researchers that's it's critical to understand them and their work to understand the evolution of the case. And then I followed it up with second and third generation researchers. And yeah, John Judge was the central character of the film. And by making that film, he became a research mentor to me. And yeah, and so it's I've been working on other projects, want to make a follow-up to the searchers based on new evidence and researchers that I wasn't able to interview in the first film. Right. Now that it's the 60th, there are some conferences that were on, and I understand you spoke at one of them, and or a couple. I just wanted to get you to give people an update of your views of, of uh, what happened. And I guess we can start with, um, well, not quite Dallas, but Chris Gallup's luncheon, which is... Uh, been going i forget how many years but is it more than 10 years 
Oh, yeah. So this was the 11th JFK Continuing Inquiry Luncheon Symposium that um, Chris Gallup has put on. And I got to tell you, this is, for me, the perfect way to start the conference weekend every year. I highly encourage people to go to the Continuing Inquiry and find where next year's conference will be. And, you know, for me, it's simply because he always holds it outside of Dallas, away from Dallas. And the last last year, maybe the last couple years, and I think moving forward, it's at the Lone Star Garden in Fort Worth. So one of the many things I like about it is that it it shows people the good side of Texas, that the people of Texas did not assassinate President John F. Kennedy. It happened in Dallas with the help of some Texans in power. I don't know if that makes sense, but, and he has amazing speakers every year. This year, we had Gary Shaw, a first-generation researcher. He talked about his relationship with Beverly Oliver, as well as the new book he has coming out, co-authored with Brian Edwards and um, Ricky White. Oh, and William Kleber, they talked about the Ricky White story, and he's the son of Roscoe White. That's an amazing story. I highly recommend the audience, all of us, to pick up a copy of Admitted Assassin. And you can find that at the JFK, Project JFK website. Did they film it? Because uh, maybe people can watch the actual lecture. Yes, yes, we filmed it, and... Actually, I filmed it, so I'll be cutting it together and do my best to have it done by the end of the year. So after after New Year's, hopefully it'll be ready, and and uh, you can just contact Chris Gallup at the Continuing Inquiry, JFK, the Continuing Inquiry, and he'll he'll have it available for everybody. Yeah. So next we had Brian Edwards, who also talked about Admitted Assassin, the book. He has an amazing perspective being a former police officer and a SWAT team sniper. So he was able to talk in detail about the forensic firearm elements to Dealey Plaza, as well as um, just the mechanics of how that kind of thing would work in Dealey Plaza. Jeff Meek, an excellent researcher, um, longtime researcher, he spoke about the JFK files the new JFK files and pieces of the assassination puzzle. And that was, that was really interesting. Robert Groden spoke, of course, about his book and the photographic evidence behind the um, assassination. You can learn all about that in JFK, The Absolute Proof, his amazing book. And I spoke, I introduced people to the memorial I give every June 10th at American University's Peace Speech Memorial. And I'm continuing the tradition that John Judge started in 1999. And so I read the speech that I gave there this year. And you can find that on my website. Very good. What is your website for those who are just listening now? TheSearchersFilm.com. Good. Very good. Yeah. And finally, Dr. Michael Marcades spoke about his book, Gathering Fallen Petals, about his mother, who was Rose Sheremy. And she was a, a witness who 
decided to speak. Yet another witness who decided to speak who was who was killed on a lonely road in Texas. And that she had advanced knowledge that something was going down in Dallas. Yes, absolutely. And that was the continuing inquiry luncheon. Yeah, it's always great. Usually, Chris, I have him on to help promote it, but he was unavailable, so I just uh, we did talk about it. But it's good to hear that someone who was there highly recommends this year after year, and that Robert Groden was there at Fort Worth, not still not that far away, but I, I guess um, not Dallas. It's yeah, not Dallas, and it's a it really is a you know it's it's smaller. There are like forty forty five people there, and you can really interact with everyone. I met a ton of people and there were a lot of newbies there this year, people new to the assassination research. And so it was, it was really great just being able to hang out, have amazing barbecue and meet a lot of interesting people and see speakers give excellent presentations. Right. Is there one maybe new item that, that you picked up that you weren't aware of? There's always some little thing that pops up, but... Yeah, absolutely. And I was blown away by Gary Shaw's and uh, Brian Edwards talking about their new book, Admitted Assassin, about Roscoe White, a longtime alleged assassin, and all the evidence that Roscoe had left to his son, Ricky. It's a fascinating story. And they gave... I guess that's a, this is a, a great segue to JFK Historical Group Annual Conference that David Denton's group put on at the Doubletree on Market Street. And for me, the highlight of that conference was the Roscoe White panel featuring Ricky White, Gary Shaw, of course, Brian Edwards, and William Claber. And that pretty much blew everyone away. I don't want to give up what's in their book, but Ricky did bring the time capsule canister that his father put a lot of items that where he talks about the assassination and alludes to his role in the assassination. And you actually brought the the time capsule to the conference. So it was it was an amazing conference. It was an amazing panel discussion on Saturday night. So is that something that before before the, the two lectures that you heard, you had been maybe somewhat soft on, skeptical, and then after you heard this, you went, this is, wow, really news? That I know I had sometimes a similar feeling about John Armstrong, right? You know, oh, there can't mm-hmm. be a Harvey and there can't be a Lee and that, but I'll, I'll go along with an imposter. I'm just not sure of their names, but the more I listen to John and his research, I go, wow, he's found so many things. That if that's his conclusion, fine. It doesn't have to be. You know, my mind is not made up on something, so I'm still open, and I'm I'm happy that I'm just open to say, okay, really, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I feel the same way, and so many people in the research community feel the same way about so many topics. You know, I the first time I heard the theory that John Armstrong, for instance, was putting forward, I found it. I didn't know if it was plausible. If I was like the same, really. But when you read his book and when you speak with him and when you hear him speak about his work, it, it's fully documented. There's very little speculation. And after you really do a deep dive into, into um, Armstrong's work, for instance, you realize that, oh, my gosh, he really uncovered and yeah, he, he did a lot of good work that if you like I'm 
happy because I know him that he'll say, well, look, Len, just show me where I'm wrong then because I'm, I don't want to be wrong. And I just like that attitude. It's not the same on a lot of researchers. Uh, some of them are, it's my way or the highway. And like you're saying about Roscoe White or things, well, I heard the story, I heard the story, I'm not sure how, you know, I, I don't have the book yet, so, but, um, but you're saying you've heard these people speak and it's worthwhile looking into that story. So, you know, that's what I'll do, you know, just with an open mind. Well, okay, well, I've heard some, you know, speculation, but uh, let's see what they have to offer. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I was, I just didn't know um, enough to form an opinion before, really, about Ros- the Roscoe White thing. You know, there are some compelling, compelling photographic evidence over the years, but, you know, I was just ignorant about a lot of it. And they did an excellent job at distilling the information into a package where using fully documented evidence, I, I think it is very, very likely that um, Roscoe White was, was involved and was perhaps a shooter on the knoll. Okay, or involved. So I'll have, yeah, to, involved. I'll have to read the book myself, right? Yeah, absolutely. Great. Tell me a little bit more then about the um, the David Denton conference. Yeah. So, um, you know, a steady string of amazing speakers. Um, Mal Hyman gives a great talk about the media's coverage or lack thereof of the um, JFK and MLK assassinations. Um, Ryan Jones was there from the. Um, Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Hotel to talk about the MLK assassination and how it relates to the JFK assassination and how many of the same forces were involved. And he's an excellent speaker and no one knows more about the MLK assassination than he does. It's really fascinating. Or And he and William Pepper, of course. Um, and, um, Ed Tatro was there, of course. He is a, for an older first generation researcher, man, that guy has more energy than anybody I know. And he, his depth of knowledge about virtually every aspect of the case is simply remarkable. He can kind of like John judge, he's able to pick up, um, a piece of evidence that he read years ago and just spout it out in a concise form so everybody gets it. It's rem- <laughs> He's remarkable, man. And um, William Law gave a great presentation on the, on the Bethesda witnesses. Casey Quinlan talked about his book, Beyond the Fence Line, that he wrote with Brian Edwards. And what it's like teaching the assassination to his high school students and another, a a number of other excellent, excellent speakers. Yeah. Robert Groden, of course, Chris Milligan, Gary Fannin talked about Operation Mockingbird. On the first day, Dick Russell gave a great talk about the case of Richard, Richard Case Nagel as related in his, that he wrote about in his book, The Man Who Knew Too Much. That's an astounding story that somebody would uh, uh, purposely 
uh, go in and pretend to rob a bank, just fire gunshots and wait for the police because he he wanted to be in jail when something was going down. It's just really unbelievable. What a remarkable story. And I learned something about just a little piece of information about that case that I didn't know before, that he was finally subpoenaed by the Assassination Records Review Board. And that was the board formed after the passage of the JFK Records Act to subpoena witnesses to gain more information about the case. And he was found dead the very day that the subpoena to testify arrived in his, in his uh, mailbox. Yeah, it's just, uh, the right word is disgusting, you know, that yeah. people think uh, America's, you know, supposed to be keeping the law around the world, and yet they've killed their own, and they covered it up. But I, I suppose that um, 60 years later, there must have been some talk at these conferences about the government is still not going to release files. I mean, it's just how much, what, what more do you need for them to say, look, we did it, you know, we're behind us. And if you want to say rogue elements, CIA, Department of Defense, I think they all got together and said, look, that guy's got to go. And what do you need? What do you need? Okay. And don't worry, we'll cover it up. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I gave a talk at David Denton's conference as well. And I give a talk called JFK 101. And it's really, it's a talk I give, talk at libraries from time to time or Rotary clubs, garden society, you know, whoever wants to take an hour and learn about general things about the case and where to even start. And, um, you know, one thing I talk about is the current state of the documents. And people, there are a couple things that people don't realize or misstate that it was important for me to make clear that one thing is. The JFK Records Act stated that all documents would be released no later, unredacted, fully released, no later than late October 2017. And only the sitting president can delay the release. So there's a notion that President Trump or President Biden released documents. That's a misnomer. They just did not stop the release of those documents that have been released under their presidencies. And the current state is that, and that people don't know, is that Biden, in a memo from December 15th, 2022, almost a year ago, wrote an executive order basically under what he calls a transparency plan, which is ridiculous. He sent all the documents back to the agencies to do an internal review on what documents can be released and no time has been sent. No deadline has been set for but that. This is after the 25 years. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, it's in violation of congressional law. But well, President yeah. signed executive orders that break the law and they have to be sued in order to release the documents. And I believe the AARC guys in D.C. and uh, other lawyers, I think... Um, Larry Schnapp is involved, but people are suing the Biden administration to release the documents. But, you know, and we shall see how those proceed. But he's violating congressional law. And even worse, he's kicked it back, kicked the documents back to the CIA, to the DIA, to the NSA, to the ONI, to the FBI and other intelligence and um 
so law right, enforcement if you, agencies. If you heard that was happening in in the Soviet Union, or that was something that EDMN did, or something, you, you everyone would laugh and I'd go, "Of course they're behind it. They're never going to release those documents because you know w- why should they?" And you know they just like it's like. Uh, they're saying, well, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? Okay, go ahead and sue Biden, you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, the most honest thing I heard, it's funny, you know, I had a real dislike for Trump. But as the years go by and I, you know, the, the real efforts that I see from the Democratic Party, from Hillary and all that, how to get him makes me think, you know, he didn't start any wars. And he was the one guy that tweeted, hey, I'm really interested to see what the files bring out tomorrow, right? And then, right. oh. We can't release them. And then he told Judge Napolitano, he goes, if you saw what I saw in there, you'll realize they can never be released. Now, that's just an anecdotal quote, but there you go. There's somebody who's saying something about him, as opposed to people who are trying to pair. Or the Warren Commission, those honorable men, uh, they had it right. It was a lone assassin, and he got off those three bullets, you know, three shots, and uh, magic bullet, and, you know... It really, it's pathetic, and it's uh, it, for me, it's a real, just a real black eye. It's one of the reasons that you know, I'll, I'll leave it alone. <laughs> but no, uh, you're right, you're right, and of course, the media just supports that by not even discussing the state of the documents, and when they do, they they continue the notion that a president released any documents, which infuriates me. And even worse, the, the media, when they do make pieces, they all support the, the, the official version. So there's something on the History Channel made by a colleague of mine who it's just another rehashing of the Warren Report. The conclusion is the official story from 1964. There are other pieces being released on the 60th, of course, and Again, all they do is support the official lie. And that's where we are. So it's important that people, you know, filmmakers and artists do their work. Writers do their work. You know, we're so thankful for for you, Len, over the years, giving researchers a platform to at least express and put into the put out there into history that what they've learned what documents have been released, and why it matters. Yeah, and why it matters. And it's like skiing uphill (laughs) because, uh, you know, every agency, like you're mentioning, even 60 years later, people are still clinging to the Warren Commission instead of saying, you know what, if, you know, former Alan Dulles had something to do with uh, ordering Kennedy killed and then he's placed in charge of the the cover-up, I mean, the whole government's a fraud, and maybe we should stand back and look at how how are we being governed, you know? What do you mean uh, the NSA, DIA, and uh, all these people, they're spying on everything, everyone's cell phone's tapped, whether you like it or not, it is, you know? And I just, I saw this one meme of uh, George Orwell, and he says, did I call it or what? <laughs> that's That's pretty true. That's pretty true. And, you know, the older researchers still have to remind um, people like me that since November 22nd, 1963, we have not had a legitimate government that was even trying to come close to what Kennedy was doing until we solved the Kennedy assassination. And then 
And this is what John Judge always said. If you want a democracy, you have to solve the Kennedy assassination. Only then can we move forward. And that's going to be a big point in The Searchers 2. Oh, there's going to be a Searchers 2. Yeah, I'm making a follow-up I'm making a follow-up um, to the film. I just I wasn't able to interview so many people. There's been so much revealed in the case since since I was uh, shooting, you know, 15 years ago. And I think it it's time for a follow-up. What I can promise you is that it will not take 14 years. Well, you know what? Don't even worry about that. Because, you know, at least you're really doing something you care about, you know, the truth wherever the chips fall and you're just interested in the topic. It kind of shows you how that you can't trust people, a government, from time to time. They just outright lie. So whether it took you five years or 10 or 14, whatever, at least you made it for the number of people who just sit on their hands and don't do anything, right? So I, like um, Oliver Stone uh, last year released his 30 years after the fact after the original 30 years i'm he made the film and then he said we know so much more i think people don't realize how much more we know so 30 years later he uh destiny betrayed was jim Eugenio. he made another one just it was similar to your first searchers but it wasn't i think your yours dealt with the, the personalities and and the realities of of what people do and how they put their life on hold for this as um, mm-hmm. as opposed to just kind of a courtroom, here's the things we do know, right? And yeah. uh, that was good for him, and it did well. Although, I guess some people, if they have their mind made up that uh, Lee Oswald did it, they wouldn't bother watching that. But I think then the next the next version of people who listen to Black Op Radio would, would watch The Searchers or The Searchers 2 or that and say, you know, look at uh, all these people that have been trying to level the playing field. Especially John Judge is the number one. I mean, I always think of Mae Brussel to start with. I mean, then there's like Jim Garrison and Fletcher Prouty in the beginning, you know, saying there's something wrong. And then Mae Brussel and then, um, you know, Vince Salandria and, and others who spoke out to a point, you know, that, you know, there's, there's just something wrong with the story. Whether you liked John Kennedy or not, there's something wrong with the story. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you... Oh, there's so much to talk about. But, you know, John Judge was was a researcher that really understood that this isn't about right and left at all. This is about power politics. And, you know, John was one of the one of the most liberal or people on the left, far left that I've ever known in my life. But no one has done more or better research into the Reagan assassination attempt than John. He did that because it's about power politics. Whether you like the guy or not, it's about power politics and overthrowing the people of the United States, the the, um, votes of the people of the United States. And yeah, I always thought that was fascinating. That is a fascinating story. Well, I don't want to get into that today, but I'm glad to have you on to talk about that. I, I haven't really covered that before. You know, it's it's another thing though. It it always surprises me. Like when I like, say Trump, you like him or you don't like him, and uh, it's quite divisive. But he was a president that the day before tweeted 
I mean, I have to repeat this, that he was really interested to see what files are going to be released. And then somebody talked to him that night and said, you're not releasing the files. We don't care if you're president. We're in charge. You know that old joke where they, they turn out the lights, they turn on, and you see a film of the Kennedy assassination, and they turn the lights on. Okay, you got any problem? And he goes, okay, just tell me what my agenda is. And then the next morning, right, they announced that they're going to withhold it another four years because the CIA wasn't ready after 25 years. And then when Biden comes in, oh, because of COVID, we can't release the files, right? And then now he says, um, I'm sending him back to the CIA. And uh, the quote I heard is they will never be released. And, and because the public doesn't have any muscle in there. And it just yeah. scores, you know, someone else is in charge than who you voted for. You know, it's it's interesting. One thing that amazes me about about the public is that while consistently people have doubts about the official story, and I think the American public, it's still in the high 60s, high 60 percent that people think there's more to the story than the Warren report stated. But like, again, like John said, and like Marty Schott stated, People are allowed to believe anything, but to know nothing. And if you do not know, you cannot act. And they are keeping the ability for people to know locked up. Because once people know, then they can act. And a great, the perfect example of that is after, after the movie JFK, during the closing titles, Robert Groden urged Oliver Stone to put that title card in saying that all the files were locked away till 2029 and people got pissed off. People got angry and contacted their representatives and that's what formed the um, Congress to enact the JFK Records Act, which started the, the release of 6.5 million pages of documents and that's that's the largest release of documents um only second to the nazi documents that came out after world war ii so it, i mean it's a staggering number of documents and when i share this at dinner parties or with friends in academia they should know these things but they don't they think there's something fishy, but they just don't know enough. They have no, they're ignorant and they don't even know they're ignorant about it. But when I share some of these things with them, they get genuinely interested. Um, now, whether they'll act or be part of, uh, of uh, doing what the public did after the movie JFK, we shall see. I, I still... I'm a sucker for the for the truth, man, and I still believe that people want the truth. That I still have hope that in people's Cartesian common sense, I really do. Well, if you have the interest, I think once you sit someone down in front of a documentary and they watch more than the first minute, if they have an interest, then uh, the the documentary can show them what the story is, right? And I think mm -hmm. that was one thing that May Brussel was good at, of kind of, you know, letting people know, you know, you think everything's okay, but it isn't. Yeah, 
Yeah. And again, if they can if they can blow the head off a sitting American president in broad daylight on the street of a out in the public out for everyone to see on the street of a major American city, what they're saying is exactly what you said a little earlier. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, we can do this. What are you going to do about it? And it's incumbent upon all of us, everybody, to step up and do something, even if it's tiny, even if it's giving a little talk to your local library, just getting people into it, not not um, trying to shove any theories down anyone's throat, but there's enough information that's been released that will blow people's minds and will just get them thinking. And that's all we can really hope for. Yeah, and it, it reminds me of, uh, say, 9-11. You know, you show someone building seven. You say, now, what do you think of that? You know, and, that, and if that doesn't bug you, then, you know, uh, no problem. This is not your interest. But I think when people have looked into the JFK assassination and, and then they see the problems with Bobby Kennedy's, you know, assassination, uh, the missing photos and everything, and then Martin Luther King, and you go through it, you go, ah, oh, it's the same thing over and over. They figure it out. All they've got to do is bump the guy off, and then, uh, you know, James Earl Ray, whatever, just lock him up, surround, surround, lock him up, never out, you know. So then, if that doesn't bother you, then Julian Assange being locked up uh, doesn't bother you either. Right. Well, anyway, I appreciate you coming on to give me uh, a quick update of what happened at Chris, with Chris Gallup. And David Denton, and mm-hmm. it sounds all very positive. That's so good that you have another documentary planned, The Searchers. But you do other things as well. So I've been to your filmmaking site, where you, you're a filmmaker and editor, and uh, there's a you know host of other things. Tell people where they can find more about you. Well, you can find out everything about about my JFK work, my political assassination work, at the film's website, thesearchersfilm.com. And if you'd like to learn more about my filmmaking in general, you can go to rbensonfilm.com and everything's there. And I have links on both sites to the other site. So either one will take you where you want to go. Okay. Well, we hope some, you know, people learn something new about your good work. And I'm looking forward to the searches too. And thank you for your good work that you, you keep the memory alive of people who have decided this was important and then these documentaries show why it still matters yeah well thank you i appreciate that and same to you okay so i've look, been listening look, to your show forever I, from the first show with greg burnham oh wow <laughs> <laughs> okay before we wrap up is there something you would like to bring up i didn't get to yet no i think we covered a lot for today i'll let you know as things progress just keep you in the loop Thank you very much. All right. Until next time, then. Thank you, Randy. Thanks so much, Lynn. Okay. Good night. Night. You're listening to Black Op Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment, we're going to be speaking to Joachim Van Wing. Hello, Joachim. Hi, Lynn. Greetings from Brussels, Europe. Yeah. I had a great time in uh, Brussels. Thanks to you and your great luncheon that you had. Uh, tell me, 
When is that going to be ready? I know you took video of everything. I don't know that the finished product is out yet, is it? Well, your episode, so the, the interview or the, the conversation we had is the first one that will be ready and it's only a matter of days. So it should be out in the next couple of days because the editor, he was overworked and actually he's doing a lot of uh, prime time shows for uh, the Belgian uh, state Oh, TV no problem, no and, problem. But in a, in a couple of weeks, overworked. Eh? Yeah, but it, it'll be, he told me yesterday that it should be ready in a couple of days. So, okay, good. Well, that's good. I was glad to go there to uh, to talk about the Kennedy assassination and the fifty reasons for fifty years. Where you had a really big um, display there, monitor for people to watch it. And I must say, I was impressed when I saw that that first episode of Fifty Reasons on a big screen. I thought, wow, that looks impressive. I'm. I remember where I was when I filmed it. You know, people don't see the the background and that they only see what's in front of the camera and i thought wow it looks good uh we're gonna paste it in so uh the 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 60 minute episode on on the discussion we had will start with so the first installment the the first of your 50 reasons uh, it's it's I, I can't remember but it's something like three or four minutes uh the in the, the first introductive episode right and so that, that'll yeah. be yeah he'll he'll cut and paste it in okay very good Today, you uh, emailed me a little while ago about an idea you had, and uh, I, uh, I like it. I agreed. So why don't you tell everybody uh, your thought on what we're going to do today? Well, I, I introduced to you the, the idea of doing 60 items, going over 60 small items, and we, we could call it uh, 60 reasons in 60 minutes for 60 years. A little bit of a homage on what you did on 50 reasons for 50 years. And so this is 10 years ago today. And um, I thought, uh, another decennium, why not do something special on this very special day? Ever since I started researching the JFK murder, the 22nd of November for me is a, a very special day. Uh, only today I, I wrote a Substack article, it's in Dutch, on the role of the media and how the 60-year anniversary of the murder of JFK is portrayed in the Belgian media and what they came, came up with. It was really horrible. I mean, uh, the, the official story, uh, Oswald was the, the sole lone nut, did it alone, there were no conspirators, uh, he... He had a mental illness and, and so on and so on, regurgitating the same pseudo-arguments for 60 years, let's say. So I, I wrote a, a fiery rebuttal and opinion piece on the behavior of the Belgian media regarding the 60-year anniversary and the way they keep regurgitating the same old narrative, not taking into account the four large investigations that have been held since and all everywhere the the Warren Commission is in error and ever since the assassination records review board we know exactly where and on on which pieces of evidence they got it all wrong and we felt it we intuitively we knew that but ever since 99 98 99 Everything that came out of the ARRB demonstrates and, and proves that the doubts, the doubts that were there from day one were actually justified. Doubts that were there from day one, yeah. How can you get shot in the front from the back? Yeah, 
Yeah, I don't want to push it too far, but one of these arguments that one of our most well-known Belgian journalists uses is actually, and I am paraphrasing, people who keep believing there was a conspiracy cannot accept the fact that a loner, a nutcase, just bought a silly rifle and did it on his own. And this is such a a non-argument because if the Warren Commission would have come up with an investigation and a report that would demonstrate how Oswald did it all on his own, how he bought the rifle, uh, how he was on the sixth floor at 12.30, how he made it down to the first floor and so on. If it was a watertight, perfect investigation, there would be no conspiracy theory whatsoever circulating. And if there were, it would be really easy to dismantle such a theory and to prove the conspirators or the, the to prove them wrong. And so the fact 60 years after the cause, these theories still circulate is simply because the Warren Commission did a very, very lousy job and instilled more doubt than clarity. Yeah, yeah, more doubt than clarity for anyone who looks into it. And then as you look into it further, you go, this is outright fraud. If I would translate your phrases now into Dutch, you would read what I had written (laughs) a couple of days ago. So that's exactly what I said as well. Yeah, Yeah. we're on the same page there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You have uh, your reasons for for 60, 60 years and 60 minutes for 60 items. And I'm ready to go. Do you want to start off? I'll, I'll start off. The first name or item I have is simply the name Richard Case Nagel. He always fascinated me um, because it takes a little studying to come up to stumble on what happens in El Paso on the 20th of September, uh, 63, where he, he, he walks into a bank, draws his pistol and shoots two bullets into the ceiling, making sure he's arrested by the FBI. Not the local police, but by the FBI. And what is found in his belongings, a fair play for Cuba member list, some diplomatic addresses in Mexico City related to the embassy, and a US ID card of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald with a picture of him, a US ID card with an overstamp and uh, so an official ID. And when Oswald was apprehended or, or arrested in the Texas theater, they found in his wallet the same sort of US ID card, but with an overstamp and with a different picture. Dick Russell did a great work writing the book, The Man Who Knew Too Much, where he goes in every de- into every detail. He was a, a fascinating character. He probably met one of the Oswalds in Japan and or in Mexico, and he was suicided in 95, the very day <laughs> the letter dropped into the mailbox from the ARRB asking him or invitating him to come and testify. Yeah, wow. Yeah, Richard Kiesnagel. That is, that's something. Maybe I'm wrong, but perhaps he, he's the most recent elimination or victim of uh, suicided uh, witnesses. Uh, I don't know if, if after uh, 95 there were some more who paid with their own life for being involved, but to, he might well be the, the most recent one or the last one. Okay, my number one thing on in no particular order is uh, Ed Lansdale being spotted in Dealey Plaza. 
the fact that this picture of Ed Lansdale walking by the tramps right there after, you know, Fletcher Prouty told me, study what Ed Lansdale did for a living. And then when you find out he's in Dealey Plaza, that doesn't mean he pulled the trigger or anything. It's just amazing that this Air Force general, who was a CIA man, is in Dealey Plaza when there's a change of government. And that's what he did. And Fletcher wrote letters to, I think, seven people and showed them the picture. And they all wrote back to him. And the most famous is General Victor Krulak, who wrote back to him and said, that is, in fact, Ed Lansdale in Dealey Plaza. What the hell is he doing there? You know, he didn't have any other conclusions. And uh, I think in the letter he says, did anybody ask him? You know, like, but it's, he goes, it's a very fascinating proposition that Lansdale is there on the day that Kennedy's killed after he retired from the Air Force, November 1st, I think, and then stayed in the hotel that Kennedy stayed in the night before. And then, uh, you know, even uh, in that photo, uh, Lansdale's wife identified him. Yeah, that is Ed Lansdale. So, you know, what he was doing there, but as a CIA man, almost a number one mover and shaker for Alan Dulles was Ed Lansdale. And that's my number one reason that uh, there's something wrong with this case. Rightly so. Good pick. Good pick. On number three, I have uh, Dorothy Kilgallen, who was found suicided or death because of an overdose of barbiturates, of how is it called, only days after she told the people in her network. She visited Ruby privately, had several and long conversations with Jack Ruby, and then told everyone who wanted to know, I am going to blow the case wide open with everything she got to know from Jack Ruby. And uh, what I always found astounding, because I, I'm European and I'm, I'm born in 74. So first, I don't know TV 60s or, or primetime television shows from the 60s and the 70s. But when I got to, to learn about the murder of uh, Dorothy Kilgallen, it, it really astounded me that she was a, a well-known journalist, a well-known media figure. So even then, it was more dangerous to keep her alive than to eliminate her in even suspicious circumstances. Uh, circumstances. So that goes to show how desperate they were or how critical or toxic the information was she actually obtained from Jack Ruby that they thought it was less of a danger to kill her than to keep her alive. Yeah, Dorothy Kilgallen, that's a good one. My next one is going to be Alan Dulles. The fact that here was the head of the CIA, like in the movie JFK, they call him a sacred cow after World War II of intelligence, spearheading the whole war on the Soviet Union and the Eastern communism. He was in charge of all that. And then Kennedy fired him for a number of things that the CIA were, that were just against the American foreign policy. They were going behind the president's back constantly until the point where he fired Alan Dulles. And then when Kennedy is killed, I mean, Alan Dulles represented, he was a law firm, Sullivan Cromwell, representing the biggest money in America. And when they said that guy's got to go, they turned to Alan Dulles and said, you know, make it happen. Then he's in charge. He's placed as one of the head people in the Warren Commission itself. I mean, that that's just wrong. The goal. I mean, you have to dare and do that. I mean. Or or you're flexing your muscles. Hey, yeah. you know what? Yeah. This is the yeah. fox who just raided the hen house. What yeah. are you going to do? Yeah. 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 Good pick. He needs to be on the list. That's for sure. On number four, I have Robert McEwen for the simple fact that I had never heard of him before I really started getting into the case. And 
he was visited on Labor Weekend, on uh, on Labor Day in '63. So that's uh, the first of September. Three people visited McEwen at his home, and they tried to buy four high-powered rifles. And one of the people trying to buy the rifles identified himself as. Lee Harvey Oswald, which is funny because that very moment, the, the Oswalds, the family and the kids were uh, at the Moretz in Louisiana. So they drove all the way to Baytown, Texas to get some rifles, which he refused to sell them because he was out on probation and he was actually the, the private gun runner of Castro. It's very significant for three things. First, it's an impersonation of Oswald, who was clearly somewhere else. Second, we know it was an attempt to create a link between Oswald, McEwen, and Castro, which then would could be used as a reason to go to war or to invade Cuba. And third, it tells us that by the 1st of September, the, the conspirators still didn't have a murder weapon they wanted to plant from the, the sniper's nest or wherever. So by the 1st of September, the conspirators were still looking for a murder weapon that could be traced back to Oswald, traced back to McEwen, which would lead to Castro. And I thought it was very significant. Right. Good one. Yeah. My next one is going to be Fletcher Prouty. Fletcher Prouty was a colonel in the military. He worked 23 years. The last nine years in the Pentagon, and he worked in uh, pretty high up in uh, they called a focal point officer between the between the Air Force and the CIA. Therefore, he got to know of all the requests from the CIA, and he never had to sign an oath of secrecy to them. And when he started to speak out and write about things, was in 1972 era. He wrote a book called Secret Team: The CIA and Its Allies in Control of the World. And he really lifted the lid of a lot of things that were going on that people didn't know about. And you either accept it or not. But I think he's one of the rare people that did speak out to say something's been going on. Something's rotten. And in the instance of the JFK assassination, of course, the CIA was behind it. Number seven for me is Jim Mars, who did a very interesting piece of research on where the name Lee Harvey Oswald came from only minutes after the shooting. Somehow the, the police, the Dallas police knew to go after Lee Harvey Oswald. They said it was because they did a, a head count and were looking for everyone missing in the, the Texas School Book Depository and the only one missing was Oswald. After a few minutes, that wouldn't work because lots of people were still outside. Uh, but by two o'clock, they did a head count and the only one was missing was, was Oswald. Now, he goes after the origins of how the name Oswald appeared as the guy they were looking for, the culprit. And Jack Revelle, he went with an officer of the US, of the Office of Naval Intelligence. They went to the archives and in there they found a cross-reference for a Alex James Heidel. And it's referenced to a Harvey Lee Oswald with an address 605 Elsbeth, but he never lived there. He lived on 602. So the same identical mistake, the, the, the mistake of copying the wrong address appears twice because it also appears in the cross-index in the database of ONI, which tells us that the Dallas police was tipped off by the Office of Naval Intelligence. So the two, the two identical mistakes 
appear twice, which gives away that that it was doctored. Yeah. Okay, very good. My next item is going to be, I'm going to name a person, Jim Garrison. Jim Garrison was a rare individual that was in New Orleans that, as a district attorney, he decided to investigate when he heard something that the, the assassination uh, took. One of the guys lived in New Orleans, and this Lee Oswald character, and, and so he said, let's find out what the guy was up to. And he was doing an investigation of, you know, what happened in New Orleans. And the further he got into it, he realized that, that there's some kind of intelligence operation going on here, and it's not just a lone nut. He tracked so many things down with just a few people on his uh, assistant district attorneys that he ended up taking a case to court. His book was called On the Trail of the Assassins. Not one assassin, but the assassins. And he was on mm -hmm. their trail, and it led to people in the intelligence community. And uh, hats off to Jim Garrison for doing it. What a job he did. You know, he didn't win the case, but the jury pulled after the fact said, yeah, the, he did have reasonable doubt on what happened, but, but we couldn't prove that it was just Clay Shaw, and the trial was about Clay Shaw at that time, so they had to find Clay Shaw innocent, although he, he did lie about several things, and uh, one of them was knowing Lee Oswald and Jack Ruby and, and the whole mud trail that goes down from there. But that's my item of interest, Jim Garrison. What I found special about Garrison, of course, I don't know the guy, I never met him, but he comes across as someone really genuine and with a with good morals and, and so on, uh, with a good character. Well, you know, as good as anybody can be, that you can see when you hear him give interviews, lectures, you know, that he was honestly interested in what happened, not just mm -hmm. going yeah. along with a cover-up. Yeah. And it happened to fact that uh, it led to his own government, which was probably uncomfortable. Yeah. On number nine, I have, again, I guess, John Armstrong. He's a great researcher. And uh, as much as he did for the Harvey and Lee story and identifying two different personalities or, or cutouts, what he did on the Manlicher Kakano is, is just as important. He's, he goes after the real documents. And he actually single-handed demonstrated that there is zilch, none, nothing, no proof for Oswald ever buying or receiving the 6.5 Menlicher Carcano. So he went to the importer of the gun, uh, which is Crescent Arms. He looked at the documents at Klein's Sporting Goods, and he saw there were no batch numbers, no serial numbers, no carton boxes, and no box numbers. So impossible to trace a serial number of a gun. And the gun actually was so-called already bought by clients, if we go by the documents that the Warren Commission provided as proof, when at that very moment the gun was still on storage at Crescent Arms. The ordering by Oswald, he cut out a coupon from a gun magazine, uh, American Rifleman, I guess. The only proof the, the Warren Commission provided was a photocopy or a picture of a coupon. And the very microfilm that they found at Klein's where the coupon so-called was archived is just a picture, but there is no microfilm. So the, the, the source uh, material isn't there and the microfilm has gone missing ever since then the payment of the gun uh, uh, armstrong went looked into the money order that that oswald uh, so-called used for paying the the the, the, the carcano and 
it lacked four stamps of all the banks involved of executing payment. And then the money order itself had a, a numbering that was over 100,000 money orders off. So going by the speed at which money orders were sold at the Dallas Postal Office, the numbering of the money order in evidence in the National Archive actually dates somewhere around spring 64, which yeah. tells us that the, it was probably recreated afterwards and just drawn out of a stack of, yeah. of empty and, and money And if anybody orders. doesn't believe that, they should look into it. There's been some really good research, like you mentioned. It's just unbelievable that there's yeah. no bank stamp yeah. and then the, the, the serial number is like, oh, am I, just as soon as you look into that, you go, fraud. There's something wrong yeah. here, real fraud. And then the last point, Armstrong really points out, and, and with good reason, there was no procedure of delivering a firearm in the name of Heidel when being sent to a post office box belonging to a guy named Oswald. There was no procedure for that. Yeah, yeah. All right, very good. My next one is Mr. Dan Hardway. Uh, yep. Ed, Ed Lopez and Dad Hardway were working on investigating for Blakey when, when he took over. And Dan Hardway had a real first-hand knowledge of how the CIA obfuscated from them. How every time they made requests, they were no, not allowed to even... They had to go into a room with no notes or anything, and they were just allowed to look at the paperwork. But they weren't allowed to photograph it, make copies of it, and things like that. He was supposed to be investigating on behalf of a new government investigation and his hands were tied every which way and Mr. Dan Hardway has written about that what he his investigation did with Ed Lopez is just it's abomination it's just unbelievable and when you hear what he'll tell you about his investigation you'll just go fraud this is total fraud Mm -hmm. yeah so that's my item number 11 for me is Jim Mars who spoke to his friend and coroner in Dallas, Paul Grudy. There were apparently no fingerprints found on the rifle until Sunday evening. By that time, Oswald was murdered by Ruby in in the police station. And only by, on the 25th, on the morning, Monday morning, the 25th, FBI agents visit the morgue where uh, the body of Oswald is, is kept. And they go in. And lo and behold, they come out. Uh, shortly thereafter, they find some fingerprints, uh, a smudged fingerprint on somewhere underneath uh, on the rifle. So th- there were no fingerprints, but only when you visit a corpse, then afterward y- you find some fingerprints. And, and it was actually Grudy who told his friends or uh, and, and Jim Mars that he had uh, re- big trouble getting the ink of uh, Oswald's dead hands cleaning him up for burial. My next one is going to be George Joannides. Mm -hmm. This man was in the intelligence community. He was pulled out of retirement to handle Dan Hardway and Eddie Lopez and and any investigators. And he was given a medal for his work after the fact. And his job was to, to obfuscate any investigation, to keep documents out. This man was high up in in Miami in all the efforts against Cuba. Just when you find out what he did for a living, George Joannides, and you find out that he's uh, on the panel there on the House Select Committee on Assassinations, 
there. That's one of the things Fletcher Proud, he said he went to testify one day. And he went in there and he saw George Joyneedy sitting on the panel. And he goes, oh my God, well, these guys are sunk. There's, there's no way I'm going to, anything I say is not going to make a difference. Because they don't realize how infiltrated from the top down they are. And uh, yeah, George Joyneedy's, you can see a picture of him getting a medal for his work in covering up the truth to the American people. Wait, great medal for that, right? I think Jefferson Morley is, is one of the people who had a hand in getting that revealed by asking for his um, records, his holiday pay, his this, all that, you know, and, and where he was. Yeah, it's a, another dark figure that is worth investigating. On number 13, I have National Security Action Memorandum 263. Simply because it was released in October, Kennedy ordered that the very last observer and military detaché should leave Vietnam by mid-1965. Then on the day of his funeral, the 25th LBJ comes out and revokes 263 and comes up with 273, which turns it around. And so with a National Security Action Memorandum 273, uh, not only were all military people not evacuated from Vietnam, but it would go in full swing and over, I don't know how many, one million or two million Americans would be railroaded and, and, and transferred uh, into the, the battle area, which would become Vietnam, just on the very day of the funeral. National Security Action Man Memorandum 273. Yeah, and 58,000 Americans died for nothing. For, you know, for nothing to just make money, you know, sell Bella helicopters, things mm -hmm. like that. Anyway, okay, uh, since you mentioned that, I'm going to mention NSAM 271. This is where uh, Kennedy was deciding that after his speech that we breathe the same air, drink the same water. We have to have value our, our children the same way that the Soviets do. We have to start getting along. He decided to end the space race. And with that NSAM-271, he ended the space race. He was saying, we're going to the moon jointly. And he wanted NASA to share their information with the Soviets so they could both jointly contribute and go to the moon. Maybe similar to how there's a space station today, but he wanted that back then. The Nazis that were against that hated the Soviet Union. Werner von Braun, Dornberger, those kind of guys, they freaked out. They did not want to uh, share their technology with the Soviets, who were bitter enemies. And um, that was just another, if you've got a room of 10 people that all hated Kennedy, there was, there's one of them, the people from NASA. So NSAM-271 is worth looking into. Number 15 for me is, and I called it, and there it was, stamped right on the barrel, 7.65 Mauser. And it's, uh, it's a reference to uh, Roger Dean Craig, who together with Day and Wiseman went up to the sixth floor and they found a Mauser. They never found the Carcano. And it's actually part of this, the, the only research fact that I discovered myself is the conversation I had with someone who's a real gun buff. And he told me, uh, Joachim, listen up. Whatever this great guy uh, or whoever it was was saying stamped right on the barrel, a 765 Mauser. Mauser doesn't stamp its barrels. I mean, he's in error. Mauser doesn't do that. There is no stamp on a Mauser barrel. Yeah, except except for, for Argentine Mausers 
that were produced uh, in the late 50s or early 60s, but th these were not distributed to the broad market. The, the only one who, who really used them in the States were a few police departments who, who, bought, who had bought them as a standard issue in the late 50s, early 60s. But apart from those guys, no one else could have had a Mauser with a stamp on the barrel, which I found really revealing. First of all, it, it proves that it probably was a, uh, an Argentine make, Mauser, 765 Mauser, and probably it originated from some sort of police department that, that provided a Mauser as, as one of the murder weapons and high-powered rifles by choice. Or there as a plant, ready to go, you know, here it is, we'll drop this rifle, we'll make sure it goes back to him, but uh, all right. Well, my next item or name of uh, someone worth well is Lee Oswald himself. Lee Oswald, he said he was a patsy. I think all you have to do is watch that press conference when they, they tell him, you know, you've been charged with stuff. He goes, I, I didn't shoot a cop. And he goes, well, you, you've, you've been charged in that. And he goes, I don't know what these charges are. Well, did you shoot the president? No. In fact, I've not even been charged with that. And they said, no, yes, you have been. You've been charged with shooting the president. And you look at the body language, look at him, and you go, oh, he just figured out that he's, like he said, a patsy and set up for that. It's just uh, unbelievable. You look into Lee Oswald, low-level intelligence operative, thought he was uh, on a mission, defected to the Soviet Union, but then came back and was met by uh, Raikin, given money. I mean, just the whole story, if you look into that, is just another one that screams fraud. This man did not do anything. He didn't shoot anybody that day, like he said. Patsy. My, my number 17 is also Oswald, and also about his defection to uh, the Soviet Union, and simply because there is no word on it in the Warren Report. And it's the simple fact that he took a boat to London, where he arrived on the 14th of September uh, 59, and he flies the same day he flies to Helsinki. And there was no airline or no official flight from London to Helsinki that day. So that begs the question, how did Oswald make it from London to Helsinki in a single day when there were no flights? And the Warren report doesn't go into it, doesn't investigate, and just, just accepts it as a fact. Yeah, unbelievable. Okay, my next one is the backyard photo. Anybody who takes a look at these backyard photos of uh, supposedly Lee Oswald holding revolver, holding a gun, then some, you know, quote, communist propaganda, and somebody just went and bought these two because uh, the, the two papers are kind of diametrically opposed to each other, right? Then you look at the, the chin uh, of the face. People have looked at the shadows. The, this backyard photo is another fraud. It's phony it's um, it's meant to deceive people, and it's meant to set someone up as a patsy. And the, the backyard photos are very suspect. I treat them as fraud. That's what Lee Oswald said as soon as he saw that. He goes, oh, this is phony. I worked in photography before. That's just my face pasted on somebody else's body. You can't trust that. And also, you can use it as evidence in a fraud case. This is not the the real person standing there with the shadows and the nose don't match the shadows anywhere else on you know and many people have got it but but once you zoom in you see the line across the chin and you look at Oswald's chin and you look at the chin there you go that's not the same 
they pasted a face over this guy. And uh, luckily, not very good. And and he was a a, a photo analyst and a and a, and a, and a well he worked he in was, photography and developing yeah, things right so, so he would recognize something like that but straight that was away his, right away he said this is fake yeah my number nineteen is the Mauser the Mauser the Mauser uh, all of the twenty seconds the 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 whole of Friday twenty seconds on the newsreels on on the TV shows. Cronkite and every other TV person talks about, we found a Mauser, it's a Mauser, it's a 7.65 Mauser, we found a Mauser, and it's only Mauser, Mauser, Mauser. And suddenly, by late at night, early the next day, this Mauser silently disappears, and it turns into a Carcano. And we will never hear again from the Mauser. It then becomes a Carcano without any explanation. But it's the proof is there. It went out to the media and to the TV stations. And the first word was they found a Mauser, not a Carcano. Wherever the Carcano came from or how it turned up or when it exactly appeared into evidence or is, is really not clear. Okay, well, following that, then, I'm just going to talk about the actual bullet, then. Commission Exhibit 399. Commission Exhibit 399 is another fraud. There's no way that that bullet made all that damage. But the fact that they hold that bullet up and said this is what did all all the damage, it's just, uh, it's the number one fraud to me that when I see that bullet, I go, there's no way that did anything, but either got either just dropped or shot into a bucket of water, you know? Like, there's just no way that that bullet did any of that damage that they say that would have happened from a single bullet. And you can get into the other parts of that, but just that bullet is fraud. No one should believe that Commission Exhibit 399 did anything. On number 21, I have, again, something that came out of John Armstrong. According to the Warren Commission, Oswald thought himself perfect Russian when he was in Japan. He self-studied or something. He learned to speak Russian in Japan. According to Marina, he spoke perfect Russian with a Baltic accent. Yet, when Armstrong visited Anita Zeiger, she told him he didn't speak a word Russian. He only spoke English. Yeah, and thanks to John Armstrong for that revelation. Because uh, you know, have to you know, when you find a lot of these different pieces of the puzzle, some of them don't seem to fit, and you go, "Well, wait, how can that be true?" If, but you know, they said this, and what about the Russian language school and all that? No, oh, well, maybe, maybe it wasn't him. Could it have been somebody else? Could there, could there be a double, an imposter? But just how many pieces on this chessboard are they moving around? And then you go, okay, maybe maybe more than one. And and simply the fact that the Warren Commission doesn't go into that, they don't investigate. Okay. It's something we it's something we would have loved to have known. Okay, so that's my next item, the Warren Commission itself. The Warren Commission, the fact that this commission was set up to investigate a crime, Judge Earl Warren had to be bullied into it. He had to be threatened with there would be thermonuclear war. Lyndon Johnson said that um, millions of people would die. If, uh, if the Americans thought that the, the Russians did this, they would demand a war. We would have to fire missiles. And then uh, it would be the end. You know, he just really went into him that, that he threatened Earl Warren and he took the job and he just was a figurehead. And Alan Dulles did all the dirty work behind the thing. But the Warren Commission was a fraud. Anyone who's looked into it, you know, honestly, 
will laugh and say, this is, this is junk. This is not worth the paper it's written on. 27 volumes and then they unindexed it. Can you imagine? It took people, interested civilians, just citizens, to go through it and make an index. And so you could figure out what the hell they did. And Like Sylvia Marr did. Yeah. Sylvia yeah. Marr was the first one to index the work. Yeah. But just, just imagine, right? You know, what a fraud the Warren Commission was. Like you mentioned, some newspapers and things, even 60 years later, want to say that they had it right. They did, a, an on, you know, like Jim Garrison said, when the guy's introduced as the honorable, I no longer think of any of these people as honorable. Yeah, so that's, I'll check that off. Number 23 for me is uh, the Tippett murder and the exact timing. We know that the landlady, Oswald's landlady uh, at Berkeley Avenue, said he left his rooming house at 1.03. Witnesses on 10th and Patton uh, said J.D. Tippett was shot at 1.06. According to the, to the Warren Commission, he was shot 10 minutes later at 1.16. But then Butch Burroughs sells Lee Harvey Oswald a ticket and some popcorn and tells us he he was in the texas theater just minutes after one so that's something that cannot be married we the, the, there is a problem there so the the official timing and also the timing of the witnesses of uh, oswald shooting tippet at 106 and oswald at the very same moment already being at the texas theater it's something that we don't find in the Warren report. It's not been investigated. And it took some other researchers to come up with the real timeline and the, the, the conclusion that both cannot be correct. My next item was going to be Mark Lane and all the interviews he did. Mark Lane went around to all the different witnesses and people who had he heard from the Warren Commission that, that had something to say. And he went to find out, as he took a filmmaker with him, that they had a different story, a different slant on it. And thank goodness he went and interviewed all these people because they would tell an honest view of what they saw or what they thought they saw or what they thought they heard. And he archived that, whereas the Warren Commission was leaving out stuff, changing, you know, just total fraud. Uh, Mr. Mark Lane and uh, Antonio, um, the filmmaker, archived for history what people really thought they saw and so, you know whether they're mistaken or anything. They they saw things on the grassy knoll, behind the grassy knoll, you know, just various things that they had seen. Mark Lane went and he wrote several books after the fact. And uh, his final one was my final word on the assassination and and the CIA's involvement. It's not the exact title, but. You know, the CIA responsible for the murder. Alan Dulles, Lansdale, and others, and all the other people that, that like a George Joannides, that willingly went in to obfuscate and cover up and were <laughs> promoted, given medals, you know. So thanks. Hats off to Mark Lane. And read any one of his books. At number 25, I have the total lack of transcripts, minutes, and recordings and lists. I always found it astounding that... During the 48 hours that Lee Harvey Oswald was in custody in the police station, there is no recording and there are no transcripts of the interviews and the hearings that they had with him. And the same goes for all the people present at the Texas theater. Well, 
with regards to Lee Oswald being interrogated and that, it, it just you'd think, is this case not important enough? You know, no stenographer, no tape recording. I think they even had a little room, an interrogation room, where they where they normally would record somebody. But I think they knew something was going to happen here, and they had to be very careful on on what they dug up, and then the evidence. Then they had to send all their evidence. In. But yeah, the lack of recordings is is unforgivable. Uh, I'm going to go back for my next item, the Tippett murder, like you were bringing up Tippett. The fact that there's two wallets found. And thank goodness we have uh, film footage of Oswald's wallet being somehow found at the Tippett murder scene. Oh, the guy must have dropped his wallet after he killed somebody. Imagine that. Just imagine that. I mean, it's almost incredible. But they they did that. And then, um, oh, well, he had his wallet at the police station, right? Or uh, there was a wallet left on his uh, dresser, you know? Like, how many wallets does this guy have? And how many ways are there to implicate him? But somebody leaving a wallet to be found at the Tippett shooting is just... If it was an assignment, you know, people would say, nobody's going to believe that. Leave that part out. Nobody's going to believe it. But at least we have film evidence of that, of a wallet being presented to uh, yep. uh, one of the people yep. there. It's just another another issue of the fraud, the fraud of, of this whole investigation. My next point is the flight from Dallas. It's the story of Robert Vinson. He, he was a military guy who was in Washington uh, early in the morning uh, on, on, on Friday the 22nd, and he was looking for a flight back to Colorado. And so he was offered uh, a seat a jump seat in a cargo plane and uh, he took on uh, he took the seat and they flew uh, west uh, over the US and suddenly at around uh, two o'clock the the plane starts turning to the south when they were over Omaha Nebraska and then he recognizes the the Dallas skyline and there was a, a freeway under construction and they the, the plane used this this unfinished freeway to land the plane and as they land, there is a small jeep that drives up. Two guys jump out in beige coveralls. Without saying a word, they get on board and they go sit on two other jump seats. And Vincent just found it odd that they didn't say a word. And, and they, he just heard that the president had been shot and he didn't know anything else because he was totally unaware because he was traveling on, on this military plane. And then the plane takes off in a matter of minutes they're, they're off the ground again with these two new passengers on board and then the plane lands at uh, in New Mexico they all get off he needs to stay the night at the military base where the plane has landed and only when he arrives at home he watches a television and he sees a guy called Oswald or something being shot in on, on, on Sunday morning and he tells his wife Bobby or Robbie, I, I can't, dear, that, that's the guy I was sitting in front of in the plane. It was the same guy. Don't ask me why or how, but the guy sitting in front of me in the cargo plane, when I took off in Dallas and the guy they brought on board, one of them was the, was the guy being shot right there on television. I, I'm sure of it. So which corroborates actually a little bit with with what uh, John Armstrong is telling on on that there was at least there were at least two Oswalds uh, very similar a little bit different uh, but uh, close enough or or yeah, being a look alike yeah, that, that they impossible. were hard to distinguish yeah, right. 
yeah, one of the one of the stories was that's the guy I saw in the back alley, right? And he goes, if it yeah. wasn't him, it was his brother. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. wearing a white T-shirt. All right. My next item could be Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby is a very a mysterious person that people say was mobbed up. He only shot Lee Oswald for the benefit of, of Mrs. Kennedy so she didn't have to sit through a trial. But I think the people who put the uh, headlock you know, on Jack Ruby or whatever or put the pressure on him is the reason why he shot Oswald. He was probably some kind of babysitter. He was a nightclub owner. Everybody knows who he is from the movie JFK. But he is somebody that is worthwhile investigating because he shot Oswald. And people say, well, you know, if you shoot the guy, you're accusing him of something. Now there's no trial. And, you know, Ruby, they said, looked very relieved when he found out that Oswald died. Because that was his whole, he, he was told, you better kill him or we're going to get you and your family or whatever. Whatever the uh, quotes were that he told various people. And then when he did talk to, like you mentioned, Dorothy Kilgowan, she said she was going to blow the lid off this. And if you ever listen to the testimony of Jack Ruby begging Earl Warren to get him out of the state of Texas, yep. please yep. take me to Washington. I can't tell you what went on here. They'll get me. And Judge Earl Warren just wouldn't have any of it, you know. It's so just further... So Jack Ruby is another item of interest. Number 29 for me is Dino Brugioni. It's a very long story and I'm going to cut it real short. It's a great interview that Doug Horn did with uh, Dino Brugioni. And he's the movie technician who worked for Hawkeye, and, uh, which is actually a Kodak lab. And he was, he's the guy who saw the genuine, the real, the original Zapruder movie on the evening of the 22nd. And uh, he was misguided, he was misled, um, and uh, he only found out 20, 30 years later when Doug Horn told him what and how. Uh, but he's the guy who saw the original movie and the things he tells you in, in during the interview is are, is really remarkable, and I would recommend to everyone to look up the interview uh, Doug Horn did with uh, Dino Brugioni. My next item is going to be the plot in Chicago. If you look into this, you'll find a very, very similar plot that nearly worked in Chicago where they were going to set up someone for the assassination. There was going to be people, high-powered rifles on a parade route type thing. The Chicago plot was an article, and I've got a link to it, but it's just really uncanny. The similarities of this plot that went wrong through a series of small errors that of like a walkie-talkie radio going off in an alley, which forced the police to take action, that they were following somebody, and and make an arrest and stop the whole thing from a, a cleaning lady to say, I found rifles and a, and a map of, of the route from the airport to uh, the stadium where I guess where Kennedy was going to go. And uh, she reported that as well. And there is a plot to kill JFK in Chicago. I'm sure anyone who looks into this will say, wow, this almost happened in Chicago. It didn't. And then when you see what happened in Dallas, the similarities are, you, you know, just, you go, wow. And, uh, the Chicago plot is just so interesting for the fact that, you know, it could have happened there. Number 31 for me is the press conference Kemp Clark and Malcolm Perry did at 2.16 in the afternoon. First, the transcript, the footage, the reel, everything was lost and it was destroyed by the Secret Service together with all the evidence. 
and both men were threatened to keep their mouths shut ever after. And why was that? Because in this very press conference, one hour and a quarter after they declared John F. K. being deceased in front of them on on their on their table, the 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 gathered press asked them, uh, but was there? an entrance wound and Dr. Malcolm Perry who was uh, the surgeon himself told three times to the press that would that was gathered there yes three times he said yes there was an entrance wound and it was in the neck and um, uh, as regards to uh, another shot in the head I cannot say but he was absolutely clear on uh, the, the the bullet wound in the neck being an uh, an entrance wound. Okay. Um, my next item is going to be Air Force One, uh, the getaway. And um, it's really uncanny how these um, cables, communication back and forth between Air Force One and the White House and Dallas were were they're already announcing within an hour, an hour and a half, that we have one man, we have our man, we've already you know captured him, and uh, uh, they have they the story is being set in motion that it's a lone nut, a lone assassin, and already uh, when people have found that you know thanks to um, Bill Kelly was on Black Op Radio a couple of times talking about this, um, just these tapes that surfaced and, and one was missing for quite a while but um, th- they're tapes that reveal that a cover-up is going on all already it's it's ready to go and they might have had different scenarios like you know in Miami or in Chicago and Dallas now this one we're laying it down we're going to plant a rifle we're going to blame lee oswald he's the guy that defected to russia you know and we you know we already have our man how they can know they have their man at, on the same day is just uh, unbelievable but the fact that these tapes are around and you can listen to some of the air force uh one tapes um and that's when they got lyndon johnson on board and uh you know that the whole thing is a little a little weird So I'll leave that as one item. Number 33 for me is seven witnesses and 40 inmates saw two men on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository minutes before the motorcade arrived. And so uh, not only uh, uh, Mr. Arnold and his wife, uh, but also Carolyn Waters and Ruby Henderson um, uh, saw clearly two men with a rifle one in the at the east window, the other one at the west window, and also forty inmates. Which uh, th- these inmates were uh, in the Dallas County Jail, uh, located at the same height uh, on the upper floors of the county jail, and they were able to look right into the sixth um, uh, uh, on the sixth floor through the windows of the sixth floor. So they had a they had a front row seat on on whatever happened on Dealey Plaza. And whoever was circulating uh, behind the windows of the sixth floor minutes before uh, the shooting. And it's really remarkable that only um, uh, Mr. Arnold Rowland was summoned by the Warren Commission. And while being interrogated by the commission, actually didn't get a chance to tell exactly what he saw. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, my next item is going to be uh, spies in Jim Garrison's investigation. The fact that Jim Garrison, a district attorney, was actually investigating uh, the intelligence community, or that's where it was leading. He was investigating, you know, the JFK assassination. That uh, phones were tapped. Uh, people were uh, bought off and paid to be informants for the government, and they were infiltrating his investigation and then leaving leaving out material, giving him false leads. The whole fact that uh, if this, you know, if this was Lee Oswald, how did he have the influence to try to sabotage Jim Garrison's investigation? No chance at all, right? It's just not him, and it shows you where the real muscle and uh, and funds came from. The intelligence community had the uh, ability to uh, to do that to Jim Garrison, and uh, that's just another, I think, footprint of their involvement that they tried to sabotage his investigation. And you can read about that in on the trail of the assassins by Jim Garrison. My number thirty-five is uh, a witness called Ed Hoffman. He's called the Deaf Mute, and uh, he was on uh, on the bridge uh, um, uh, over Elm Street, um, and he saw a man operating and shooting a rifle. A rifle uh, behind the picket fence. He saw uh, the gun smoke. He saw how after he operated and shot his rifle and, and uh, Kennedy's head went over. He dismantled the gun, handed it over to a conspirator who was dressed uh, as a railroad man. He took the rifle from the shooter, dismantled it and put it in a toolbox and they walked away in different directions. And he's actually I think, I, I, I can be mistaken, but he's the only witness who ever said to have seen someone shoot, dismantling a gun, handing it over, and then walking away. And he was never, he was never heard by the, by the Warren Commission. And the FBI didn't want to hear his story. Yeah, they sure didn't want to hear that, because that would lead to two assassins, multiple uh, shooting positions... And, uh, yeah, it would make people say, well, maybe there was more than one gunman. How many were there then? Was there two? Was there three? You know, triangulation of fire, it's been brought up. But, uh, yeah, good point. The, the can of worms. <laughs> Speaking of a can of worms, oh, well, my next item is going to be uh, Lee Oswald, supposedly in Mexico City, and specifically the photos from Mexico City. He was supposed to go into... Um, uh, the consulate, Russian consulate, um, Cuban consulate, he wanted to travel to Cuba and um, the CIA had cameras set up to take pictures of people who were going in and out, right? So they could they could figure out if somebody had, was an important spy and was going to leak information or something, they would know about it ahead of time, just what was going on over there. And um, the camera brought back photos of someone they said was Lee Oswald is not in the slightest Lee Oswald just it's just not even close and but the fact that they had the gall to say here's the guy that was reported as Lee Oswald going into um I'm not sure if it was the consulate or not but uh but you you know what I mean that's the the thing that the CIA was was watching and they had cameras around and uh these photos are just not of Lee Oswald and they had the nerve to say, oh, the, here's pictures of him. 
And then, you know, what are you going to do? It's a, you know, five or ten years later, people look, oh, well, that's not him. But then the case has already gone through the press and everybody, and he's been identified as, you know, 100% going to Mexico City, right, where he was supposed to meet, a you know, a spy handler there, the guy, uh, Soviet Union, in charge of assassinations for North America or Western Hemisphere, you know, and, and blah, 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 lie after lie after lie. Um, uh, the photo was a lie. So that's something that's just another complete fraud. On on number 37, um, when reading the Warden Report, there was something I found really uh, remarkable. It's the story of uh, Mrs. Reed and uh, Mr. Campbell. They, they were um, uh, colleagues at the, um, at the Texas School Book Depository. And they were standing on the pavements, on the sidewalk, in front of the school book depository building, side by side, as the motorcade drove by. Mrs. Reed said that she clearly heard three shots coming from above from the Texas school book depository, while her colleague standing right next to her said, sorry, but I hear shots coming from, from the east uh, from the west there, uh, the, the grassy knoll area. Uh, and I don't know exactly how many shots. And I found it really remarkable that it explains actually a lot of confusion that uh, no matter where you were on, 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 uh, uh, on Dili Plaza, that for some reasons, uh, the echoing and, and the way it's like a theater uh, with all the buildings around, people come up and maybe not being dishonest about it uh, with actually stating they heard shots from all directions. And I thought I found it really telling because it's, it's a good illustration of um, uh, how witnesses standing side by side have totally different experiences which adds to the confusion. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, speaking of confusion, the Warren Commission said that, that Lee Oswald ran down six flights of stairs to be spotted where he was. And my next item is going to be Victoria Adams. And there is a, a book written about here called The Girl on the Stairs. And Barry Ernest wrote about this. The fact is that Victoria Adams and her friend we're going down the stairs at the time when Lee Oswald supposedly would have had to, uh, you know, pass them. So it's it just, it's just not possible. There's another witness says that they were, you know, on the stairs at the time when they said Lee Oswald would have had to be running down, and they didn't see him. And uh, their story is corroborated by their um, uh, superior. I forget her name right now, but they just said, yeah, you know, they were working there that day, and and they, you know, yeah, okay, right, and. Um, you know, it's just another thing where the Warren Commission makes up some story that, well, you know, he must have done this or done that, and he and he wasn't, you know, he was never on the sixth floor. So if you never on the sixth floor, you tell me who saw him there. Here's a couple of people that say that he would have had to have been running by us. They, I think they started on the fourth floor, but um, it's just the story of Victoria Adams is worth looking into. The book is called The Girl on the Stairs by Barry Ernst. 
it's just another as you read it you go well this is a different story than what the Warren Commission said and it's another item that that perpetrates uh, fraud on the Warren Commission's behalf I, I actually mentioned it in the article I published today the, the one in Dutch and for me the whereabouts of Victoria Adams Garner and what's Styles. her name yeah uh, Sandra Styles is just proof that it's proof it's it's a bit harsh but Oswald simply could not have made it from unseen from the sixth floor at that very moment and it's just proof of of the Warren Commission stating things for a fact when it's simply unproven yeah right so if somebody says exactly what happened so we're not we don't know exactly what happened but here's what didn't happen and if it yeah. didn't happen this way yeah. there couldn't yeah. have been a lone gunman and if there wasn't yeah, a lone gunman exactly. it's not Lee Oswald. And if this was a group effort, well, who who would be behind that? Who would have the money to pull it off? Who would get people out of town? You know, who would be in charge of the cover-up? Not yeah. Lee Oswald. And then, you yeah. you know, it's not like the Justice Department or the FBI or, or the Secret Service are looking into it. And none of those ladies would be heard by the or interviewed by the Warren Commission and they could not participate in the time trials for that very reason. So uh, Sandra Stiles and, and uh, Vicky Adams were the only ones not included in the time trials. Yeah, there you go. So my next item is the true and true bullet hole in the windshield of the limousine from the front to the back. A doctor, Avelia Glanges, saw the true and true bullet hole in the windshield and, and researcher Doug Weldon did great research on that. He tracked the limousine from Dallas to Washington and then the car was flown from Washington to the Rouge plant the motor the Ford Motor Company Rouge plant on November the 25th he spoke to a certain George Whitaker who was the head of uh, laminating glass and glass production at the Ford company and he was actually a witness of his people he was kept out of the loop because the the glass lab where they were working on the uh, on the presidential limousine was actually locked he couldn't get in his own office and uh, shop floor and when he entered he saw how the interior of the car was completely stripped and how the the front uh, the the windshield was stripped was was taken out he saw the bullet hole in the windshield and they saw how the, the guys at ford motor company were obeying the orders to scrap and destroy the evidence to destroy the windshields yeah, that's quite a story and more examples of, of evidence to be obfuscated, destroyed, cover up, just gone missing. And there you go. My next item is going to be the Bay of Pigs. The Bay of Pigs is kind of a precursor of uh, Kennedy up against the CIA, the intelligence community, and then also the Department of Defense. They all wanted a war with Cuba. They wanted to get rid of Castro. They had plans that were years in the making that were going ahead. And then when Kennedy said, look, I'm not going to supply air cover, air support, you know, we're, we're just not going to go in there and bomb the place. And then when uh, some of the fighters survived and they were taking out the ships and the men on the beach, uh, the whole thing was just uh, a debacle. Kennedy had to take the blame for it, but he realized it was Alan Dulles's whole plan. When you investigate that, you'll realize that, that just what Kennedy was up against. And it's one of the main reasons that he finally fired Alan Dulles. You guys have gone behind my back just one too many times. 
you know, he said, I get, if this was, um, I forget what the right word, but if it was like England, the king would have to go, but here I don't have to and you have to go. So he fired Alan Dulles and Cabell, deputy director, whose brother was mayor of Dallas. So, yeah. General Charles Cabell fired, yeah, and then his brother. And the third guy, uh, but I can't, I forget his name, he was the head of operations in the CIA. But I, I can't remember yeah, his is name. It, was it Bissell? Yes, yes. Fair enough. But my, my whole thing is just the Bay of Pigs is something really you have to study because uh, the Kennedy assassination may not have uh, may not have happened and that was a pre- real precursor to, to what happened to Good. Kennedy's administration to the the fact if you're studying the CIA and where opposition to Kennedy came from, that was one of the items, right? Good pick. My next item is the person of Joseph Miltier. And regardless of the sort of right-winger he was, he was, he was from Miami. The, the most astounding fact is that there was a recording made, a sound recording, where uh, one of the informants in the Miami area called Somerset, was speaking with Joseph Miltier only days or 10 days before Kennedy's visit at Miami. And he was speaking about, we are going to get him from an office building with a high-powered rifle, and it's all in the working. And um, that's exactly what happened. There is some proof that some of this news uh, disseminated through the uh, Secret Service, and they were obliged to adapt the, the the parade and the parade route and so on. So uh, Miami then turned out not to be the spot for the, the, the killing of the president. Miltier is seen as well in a picture on Dealey Plaza, where he's standing on Houston Street, and he mysteriously loses his life. He gets killed in a very mysterious house fire just a couple of years later. Well, that kind of ties in with my next one, which was going to be Lee Bowers. And Lee Bowers was working in the railroad yard and he was a witness, another witness who mysteriously died. He testified and he was on film you know, several times saying there were people behind the picket fence, there was moving, moving around, he wasn't paying too much attention but there was something out of the ordinary there. People weren't normally there. Later on, I think researchers said they, they found some cigarette butts there and footprints and that and it kind of backed up that he said, you know, something happened there from behind the picket fence and he died in a single car accident you know it just uh, who knows what happened to him but many people think he was bumped off and another person who was a witness that saw something and reported on it and you know not there anymore Lee Bowers my next point is the fingerprint found on the sixth floor an unidentifiable fingerprint on a carton box found on the very day taken by the Dallas police and this fingerprint nobody knew whose fingerprint it was uh, was in the National Archive for 30 years until in uh, 98 the print was compared by Nathan Darby a latent print expert and he laid it next to the um, uh, fingerprints of Malcolm McWallace, the LBJ's private personal hitman. And they got his original fingerprint card from the 1951 murder, who was this golf pro. Uh, His name escapes me. He murdered a golf pro for LBJ, but I can't remember his name. And so they compared both finger sheets, let's say, and it was a conclusive match which proves that LBJ's private hitman was on the sixth floor that very day. 
simply because fingerprints on carton boxes don't last very long. So if you would find a, a fingerprint on the 22nd, chances are it's a very, very fresh fingerprint. Okay. My next item is going to be Stuart Reed, a photographer that happened to be in Dealey Plaza taking various pictures. And the one that always gets me is uh, he took a picture of the bus, the bus that supposedly Lee Oswald would have been on. And if they rushed the bus and they shot him there, you know, luckily for him, he got off that bus when it was just stuck in traffic. But it's the story, his story is that he was there taking uh, Army Intelligence photographer and then he took pictures. He went to the train station. He handed the roll of film to somebody and said, please pass that on to the FBI. And he just gets out of town. I mean, it's so strange. So that is someone who needs to be investigated more. It's just really unbelievable to me that, that, that he took these various pictures and was at the right place at the right time and then left town like that day. My next point is the party at the Murchison house. It happens on the 21st, so the day before the, the murder of Kennedy. And on that very evening, somewhere in North Dallas, where the, where the Murchisons live, there is a big party. And just let's get over the guest list. I've, I've written it down. So it's H.L. Hunt, Clint Murchison himself, Lyndon Johnson, J. Edgar Hoover, and Richard Nixon. Now, what are the chances these guys getting together out of Dallas on the eve of the murder of the president? I don't think they were discussing the price of broccoli. Well, there's some people that would debate that, that they're not sure that that happened. But even if it happened and all the people there, I mean, you, you know, some people got together and met about this. And if it was in fact planned that something is going down November 22nd. Some group of people would have to be like let known and in the know. You know, there's a, there's a picture of Lyndon Johnson that morning, I think, outside the Hotel Texas or wherever, where you can just see him looking at Kennedy, scowling. And yeah. uh, it's a real evil scowl. Yeah, I know. I know the picture. Yeah. yeah. My, I, my I, next item is... Uh, Len, just yeah. uh, to, to go over the, 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 the item I just uh, presented. Yeah. So you're saying there is actually some doubt about that meeting really happening? I've heard other people who say there's a debate about it. Ah, that, okay. uh, that Richard Nixon could not have been where they said he was. And, and the same thing with Lyndon Johnson. But then uh, Madeline Brown, who is... Uh, yeah. Johnson's mistress Indeed. has been so so uh, I'm just saying some people have said this and then other people say well it just can't have been but you know sometimes it's kind of in between that maybe um, just not everybody who was reported there I think in the men who killed Kennedy didn't they have a, um, a limousine driver who was supposed to drop some people there off so I just I just preface that that I'm not sure that the guest list is a hundred percent but okay. I'm, on the same token you know if people had to meet somewhere or if they did meet and it's one of those things that as we research we do our best you know we we put forward what we have found and then uh, it's up to researchers like john armstrong says okay well show me where i'm wrong if i'm wrong about this fine i mean i, I don't have to be tied to to every little item but we're naming so many here that uh, even like may brussel said look at even if only a quarter of what we're saying is true it should scare the pants off you the fact that we can't maybe come up with the exact number of gunshots or this you know or is the, is it a hundred percent for sure that the throat wound is entrance but 
the fact that there's so many other, you know, bullets missing, bullets hitting the curb, hitting tag, you know, the first shot, you know, there's some things that we just don't know for sure, but we know there was more than three shots. We know mm-hmm. that that magic bullet didn't do it. So then squabbling over was there five or six or seven, then you can get into the next item I was going to bring up was the acoustical evidence that they uh, did a research in uh, Dealey Plaza where there was a dicta belt that was had the mic on and you could hear various attributes that seemed to be gunshots because of the specific impulse of them as opposed to what was recorded of just a, a motorcycle driving and then you see these little pulses, right? And uh, they uh, said that there was more than three shots. It, well, I think it was brought up in the men that killed Kennedy, but you can look into it further. But it's another item of fraud that there was never just three shots. Now, from wherever point of view you were, you might have only heard three shots. If there was three from your direction and another three from somewhere else and another one, you know, seven or eight shots. A couple of people said shots happened on top of each other, that you mm-hmm. just can't pull back the bolt and then fire the next shot. Or it's so fast that uh, on-the-spot reporters said the sound of automatic weapons fire was heard. Automatic weapons fire means, you know, bursts of gunfire. And that's what other people heard too. So if you had three people shooting at you at almost the same time, the acoustical evidence is very interesting and should be looked into and should not just be discarded that uh, you will never know. Because, you know, with computers now, and you can isolate and put on a graph and see what these pulses are and just the amplitude of them. And you can even, I think, hint at the direction they came from because of the echo. If it was, you know, pow, 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 you know, it, and, and it, anyway, anyway, it's very interesting, the acoustical evidence. My next item is the Minex camera found at the Payne's garage. It's a, it's a, a very small spy camera that belonged to Lee Harvey Oswald. But that's not the funny part. The funny part about this very Minex camera is the fact that that camera has a five-digit serial number. Now, Minex cameras sold to the broad public all had six digits. The Minex cameras bought and produced for the CIA all had five digits in their serial number. And what they found was a five-digit serial number. Wow. Yep. Another item of interest. We'll get near the end here. Another next item for me is from the backyard photos. I wanted to say that the, the gun in the photo that they're carrying in the police station does not match the gun that Oswald is supposedly holding in the backyard photos. The sling is mounted differently. It's, I mean, it's very, very close, but it's not the same gun. And what are the odds that there would be two different Mannlicher Carcanos around? So the CIA was able to buy up, like you mentioned, lots of them. They had all these guns that came in after World War II, and they some of them worked. They didn't work. They just put bits and pieces from one to the other. So uh, out of like uh, 1,000 rifles, they were able to make like 150 working ones or whatever the, the number is that John Armstrong mentioned. But they just swapped and took parts from one and the other to make working rifles. Even the serial number is maybe a little suspect. But the gun that they're holding up in the police station does not match the gun in the backyard photo. And moreover, they are holding a 42-inch rifle Carcano while Kleins only sold the 36-inch barrel length. Yeah. 
That Lee Oswald was crafty. <laughs> my ne my next point is a small excerpt that that one can find online, and I would invite everyone to look it up. Uh, it should be easy uh, easy enough to find. It's John Judge telling about him being at May Brussels house and by the end of the evening they get out of the house as they step onto the pavement out of the door out of the dark and into the light of a lantern they are approached by a guy by a man and they both immediately recognize the man it's someone who looks just it's a spitting image of someone looking like Lee Harvey Oswald and he told them his name. He, he, he now goes under the name of, of Norton or something. And he would, he would at, at the very moment they are meeting him, uh, he would live in North or in South Carolina. I can't remember. Uh, going by the name of Norton. Yeah, that's it's a strange one, you know, to make of it. But, I mean, um, oh, well. George DeMorschelt is my next guy, which is a, another uh, character that needs investigation. Here is a guy who was at the fringe of, of intelligence uh, into oil, George Bush, Zapata, and yet he's babysitting, quote, it's a term for Lee Oswald, befriending Lee Oswald, and uh, you would wonder how they would even meet and how many people were placed around Lee Oswald to give him some kind of stature in a community. And uh, George de Mornschelt, uh, of course, when he was uh, subpoenaed, the same thing that day supposedly killed himself. Just, uh, you know, how many more people are going to die from a single gunshot wound? You know? He suicided himself with a, with a rifle, like uh, Gary Webb. <laughs> and he sh uh, Gary Webb, who shot himself two times to be sure that he would be dead. Uh, a suicide. Like Epstein. My yeah. Uh, my, my next item is Siebert and O'Neill. Uh, these are two uh, FBI agents who were present at the second autopsy in, in uh, Bethesda, Maryland. And these are actually the, the only two real establishment figures who openly disagree with the findings of that second autopsy or the first autopsy in, in, uh, in, in Bethesda Hospital. And... I, I don't know who it was. Was it Siebert? I think it was Siebert who said, I saw... Uh, Dr. Boswell, the doctor who executed the autopsy, noting the exact placement of the back wound, the wound, the wound in the back, on, on the right, on the perfect exact place on his fact sheet. But yet uh, Ford, President Ford, uh, later President Ford, uh, moved it up several inches so, he, it, so it would allow it being an, an entry wound that then would allow for the bullet to move upwards and come out of the throat wound. Uh, remarkable that those two FBI agents went against everyone and everything and just kept their story and wouldn't buy the magic bullet theory and until their very last day would keep on telling that what they saw at Bethesda was something completely different from what can be read in the Warren Report. Yeah, what they saw was completely different from the Warren report, and over and over and over we heard that. I don't know how many more items you have. Uh, Len, I have in two, uh, wait, uh, in two, three, three. I have three more, and I can give you one because my next item is actually something you told me. 
it's when you t- when you were here, you told me that Fletcher Prouty told you that when Kennedy was told about, was shown the pictures of Soviet missiles in Cuba, he didn't react immediately. It took him quite a lot of time simply to investigate and to verify whether whatever the CIA was um, was feeding him was actually correct. You remember you telling me that? Oh, I remember that? that because it's an interview of one of the photo interpreters, and he said he briefed Kennedy and all that, and then he went privately around the back, like wherever they were going to have like coffee or something, and he's holding the photos, and he, he says he looked me in the eye and goes, are you sure of this? Are you sure? Because even at that point, Kennedy thought he wouldn't put it past the CIA to doctor these negatives and then make the photos and then have some guy come and tell him that they're doing, that there's missiles everywhere. Yeah, it's just unbelievable how the CIA was lying left and right to Kennedy that he didn't even trust. But the photo interpreter said, no, you know, Mr. President, you know, as far as I can tell, these are, you know, I took them out of the camera, I developed them myself, and, and here I am to brief you on it. It's an interesting anecdote that Kennedy distrusted the CIA so much that he wouldn't put it past him to present phony information that would force him into starting some kind of a war. Always a war. I was really rattled by, by the way you, you told me that story when we were sitting uh, together here in, 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 in my living room. Because it, it, it really demonstrates, it really illustrates the distrust between the Kennedy administration or, or himself and his brother and, uh, and the CIA. Really telling, really telling. It, it, it explains a lot. Well, I think my final one is going to be Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone spent a lot of his life looking into the JFK assassination, looking into the story of Jim Garrison, and he took a lot of heat for this, and he went up against the very people that were part of the cover-up. You know, he, he didn't go into the assassins. I mean, I think he interviewed Howard Hunt. He interviewed a few Cuban people that he thought maybe at the at peripherally played some part and he tried to interview everyone he could but you know he spent a good time of his life maybe to his detriment looking into this case and pushing forward the fact that that our government is working against us and a lot of his films and he's done a lot of documentaries about the real history of america and things like that where he's kind of just presented with these alternate histories that you know while it didn't really happen like this like that we owe him that thanks for making the film, and then even further with Jim DiEugenio making the other movie that uh, is uh, Destiny Betrayed, and it's after 30 years after making my movie, we even learned so much more, and this is what we've learned, and I put Oliver Stone there. I think in my 50 Reasons for 50 Years, was he the final episode? Um, let me look and sh- I guess so. Yeah, yeah, episode so. 50, right. Yeah. The longest one. Yeah. The longest episode of all. Well, John Judge was going to be the 50th, and then nah. Oliver mentioned, but I had already had John on, I think once or twice. And so yeah. I went, okay, no, this is great. I'll have Dave Radcliffe and Oliver Stone on. That'll be a good way to wrap it up. And then I had that episode of John Judge just sitting there for years. And then when it came up to my show 1000, I thought, oh, this is the perfect time to bring the archived interview with with John Judge out. Mm-hmm. And he was number one in the um, the 1,000th episode of Black Op Radio, which is a good tribute to him because he had passed away by then. And it also really summed up, it helped the 1,000 episodes that I had done to say that, you know, here I've been interviewing all these various people and they all have a story to tell and we may agree with all of them or not, or maybe to 80%. And uh, 
there may be some things in the group of individuals that uh, it's kind of an ad hoc group. There's no rhyme or reason why people have an interest in this, but once they do, I think they kind of it's a real education of how crooked some of the things are, and you think, oh, could I trust the police? Could I? I can't trust the Dallas police at all. You know, could I trust uh, Earl Warren? No, I mean what they've reported in the Warren report is a lie. And then so maybe I shouldn't even trust the Justice Department or, you know, so many things that you thought you could blindly put faith in. You know, oh, the president wouldn't lie to the country, you know, and then uh, you find out, oh, yes, yeah, they would. I mean, <laughs> at least with uh, with uh, um, um, Donald Trump, he didn't say that Lee Oswald killed Kennedy, where other presidents have come out and said, I think, you know, I think George Bush is one who was asked about the movie. He goes, I think everybody, you should go watch the movie and decide. So at least it was a little more neutral. Uh, George Bush Sr., I think it was, that said that, you know, like, because people are saying, like Gerald Ford, oh, you can't trust the movie. Oh, there never was an NSAM 263, uh, you know, uh, Fletcher <laughs> and Oliver that? Stone. Yeah, that's what Gerald Ford said. He's the guy that moved the wound, the back wound, to make yeah, yeah. it more palatable. You you move evidence to go, it's easier to believe this way. Oh, what a sack of shit. And, you know, nobody thinks much of Gerald for it anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. He couldn't chew gum and walk at the same time, huh? Yeah. And, uh, um, but, you know, the, I think the thing is that when so many um, leaders, and, you know, say presidents then, you, you want to put your faith in admiration in them. They've been so failing, so failing, that when you look back to John Kennedy, you went, wow, he, the thing I liked about him, he was on behalf of America, he was trying to make that better, but he was also trying to make the world a better place. So when he went to visit other countries, he wasn't just there to, to stomp on their rights and take advantage of them. He was, you know, we're going to try to lift everybody up and uh, and let every, every boat, rise with the raising the water you know kind of thing whatever the expression is right um well you know let's all improve together around the world yeah and he's probably the last guy to say that i mean look at that guy now what uh klaus what's his name oh god if there was ever somebody who was a villain right out of a james bond movie ah, klaus schwab yeah klaus schwab. Yeah, yeah i mean yeah. good yeah. lord imagine yeah. him to president kennedy you know holy shit Sorry, yeah, he, sorry for swearing. He, yeah, he he picks the very next leaders. I mean, uh, Sarkozy, Trudeau, our Belgian prime minister, the the prime minister of of the Netherlands, are all groomed and 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 built by the WEF. Yeah, and you uh, wonder how many were filmed at Epstein's island and then just told, you know, I know you ran on some kind of program, but you're going to do this, right? If you cannot be compromised, you are unelectable. <laughs> Yeah, that's um, a quote. Well, it's not from me. It's some. It's it's from someone who knows. Wow. Who's, who's yeah yeah yeah. If 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 they don't have anything on you, you're not gonna be on the ballot. Okay, so let's wrap this up. You, whatever. Yeah. When do I you have, have two more. I okay, have good. two more items which actually go over the same thing. And the main thing is, why is it not in the Warren report? And I'll keep it really short. It's it's the shell casings found at the, at the at the JD Tippett shooting. Um, so a certain Mr. Poe he pocketed the the, the shells and he initialed them. And uh, when the Warren 
commission presented him the evidence while being interrogated uh, under oath, he held the, the, the shells in his hand and his initials that he put on the shells it's themselves were, were no longer there. And which is funny because Oswald was arrested with a 38 special, which is a, a different make, another barrel type than a standard 38. So the shells actually should show a bulging because of it being shot by a 38 special. Instead, the shells he was handed over while being interrogated by the Warren Commission are shells shot from a standard 38. And I find it odd that the difference between a 38 special and a 38 standard is simply not addressed by the Warren Commission. And then I have a last piece that, that I put in, or item that I also put in, because I find it incomprehensible how that one escapes the, <coughs> the, the hawk eye of the Warren Commission, which did such a good job, is the fact that What's her name? Um, Mrs. Carolyn Arnold Johnston. She saw and met Lee Harvey Oswald at 12.25 on the second floor lunchroom, which is only five minutes before the motorcade would appear. And keeping into account, taking into account that the motorcade had a five to ten minute, it was it was five to ten minutes late. It, it was behind schedule. So why is the, the, the guy who is planning to murder the, the president still sitting in the lunchroom at the very moment that the motorcade was scheduled to drive underneath the sixth floor window? And he's seen seven minutes later at the very same spot where this Mrs. Carolyn Arnold Johnston saw Oswald. Seven minutes after she saw him there, uh, he would be seen at the sitting at the, the same table on the same chair by Roy Truly, the building manager, and by outrider Marion Baker. All right. There you go. Well, we've got enough uh, reasons, I think, there for people to have a real doubt on the Ward Commission on the guilt, innocence of Lee Oswald, which uh, should have had a trial. Unfortunately, he was killed in the basement by uh, Jack Ruby. Who knows how he got in there? We have our suspicions that he was led in and by, by some crooked cops in the Dallas Police Department who may have been at the heart of the cover-up and the scenario to set him up. But I always like to quote from John Judge. He said, where do the shots come from? Because they came from Washington. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, Len, what I what I think is interesting about what we just did, the the list we made, it's just our top of mind. It's not as if we spent too much time on it. We just decided yesterday to do this, and we 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 quickly penciled thirty reasons or or thirty items that we find really significant in the case. I think we we covered lots of areas, a lot of gray zones, and yeah very good reasons for people to to investigate themselves yeah and if you listen to black op radio in the years to come you will find authors and filmmakers documentary people that uh, are making uh, research and presenting it to the world to say what do you think of this here's here's i have these conclusions and there is more evidence coming out uh not as fast as we would like it to come out but for those who are looking with interest uh, just the fraud of what the official story was. And that kind of leaves the footprints to who really did it, you know. And it doesn't point to a lone assassin, a disgruntled uh, 
Marxist Lee Oswald. Okay, well, I checked off all my uh, items. You've got yours done. So thank you very much for making an interesting episode on the uh, anniversary of the 60 years. November 22nd is going to be the 23rd today, um, uh, 60 years after the fact. Why people still care because of this, but the government has been passing off this complete fraud. All right, then? I loved it very much, Len. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, okay. We'll talk to you soon. Joachim van Wing from Brussels. Bye, Len. Goodbye.